Hey, it's Jessica Marshall here with another episode of The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. With the Halloween hijinks behind us, we are now focusing a lot of our attention here in the newsroom on the upcoming elections. This year's general election in the United States is Tuesday, November 7th, coming up fast. So mark your calendar and do not forget to vote. Early voting is also underway. So if that fits your schedule better, head on over to your local polling place now. And if you don't know where your polling place is, go to your county's Board of Elections website or call them up. And if you don't know whom to vote for, head over to timesunion.com and check out our voter's guide. It has literally everything that you need to know about who is running, what they stand for, and what's at stake in your community this election day. We're not going to talk politics on this podcast today, though. We are going to keep going with our dance theme from last week. Our previous episode was all about ballet and the Collage Dance Collective. This week, we are going to venture into some other genres specifically the impressive range of dance genres that professional Latin and ballroom dance superstar, also television superstar, Derek Hough specializes in. The Emmy-winning former world champion and Dancing with the Stars champion multiple times over, and that is just the tip of the dance floor, by the way, as far as his impressive credits go. My personal favorite of his accomplishments was choreographing the Olympic-winning program of U.S. ice dancers Meryl Davis and Charlie White. White in Sochi in 2014. Anyway, Derek Huff is on tour with a new live dance show. It's called Derek Huff Symphony of Dance. Emmy Award winning Derek Huff presents Symphony of Dance. Live on tour across North America in 2023. And the term high energy might be the greatest way to describe it. They're coming November 10th to the Palace Theater in Albany. I am going to let our arts and entertainment reporter, Catherine Kiesling, take it from here, though. She knows a thing or two about dance herself, having a degree in that very subject and having studied it for most of her life. Derek Huff joins her now on The Eagle. I guess we can just start there. I'd love to hear more about what inspired this tour and what sort of inspired you to you know, get back out on the road after a four-year touring hiatus. Yeah, well, well, first of all, first and foremost, I just I love tours so much. There's nothing like going into people's cities, into their, you know, where they're familiar with, and um, and just having that shared experience. You know, it's extraordinary. So I was really anxious and really excited to get back out on the road um, after you know uh, four years. Um, and this show, it being a brand new show. To, I spent, I took a lot of care and a lot of time, you know, creating this show. Um, just the music alone uh, took me several months because I built the music up from scratch, you know, from having musicians and, and, and singers and really building up the soundtrack for the show to make sure that it's, you know, it has amazing flow and it has all different genres and music from rock and roll, big band, Latin ballroom contemporary just all these different genres and uh to really take you on a journey because for me it really starts with the music um and of course the dancing you know collaborating with amazing amazing choreographers and amazing people to to really bring it to life but in a nutshell i'll try to be more short and concise but this (laughs) 
this show is jam-packed. We have a live band, extraordinary cast of dancers who amaze me every single night, and uh, beautiful, beautiful, elaborate costumes with very, just like incredible lighting, um, set design. Um, you know, there's a lot of energy in the show, but there's also a lot of art. It's jam-packed. It's jam-packed, and I'm, I'm just so proud of it. That's incredible. It really seems like this show spans, from a dance perspective to not only a music perspective, a lot of genres. Were there any that you were particularly excited to explore further or I mean, any that are a little bit more challenging for you that you were excited to, again, just like explore further and, and experiment with? Um, yeah, I mean, I think leading up to this tour, um, my wife and I, Haley and I, we, we actually took lessons, you know, we, we wanted, uh, like, I love Argentine tango, but it's something that I never grew up training in per se. So, um, I would just kind of like learn and, and teach myself and just, so I, we took them on ourselves to, um, to, you know, have lessons and, and I say, oh, I really want to learn this and I'd love to, to, to expand my vocabulary in the style, you know, even contemporary, you know, some of the some of the things that we did and, and again using the props and experimenting and trying new things and and um took a lot of workshopping to figure it out you know because it's all like it's all like this like sort of weird uh puzzle that you have to try to figure out to make sure that it works so absolutely i also know that you are somehow juggling dancing with the stars with this tour which first how <laughs> Yeah, I think it it's it's a wild one. It's it's um so far been manageable. I think it's gonna be a little bit trickier when we go start going east coast. Mm-hmm. You know, to try to make it back and forth. But yeah, it's it's been great, you know, it's been really wonderful. I think uh, there's you know, you just kinda get into a system and you get into a kind of a, a flow and you know, just figuring it all out. And uh but yeah, I think uh, we have a great PT physiotherapist and we ice bath every night and um, lots of nutrition and supplements to, you know, keep us healthy and strong. And it's, it's a whirlwind. It's kind of cool. That sounds it. That sounds it. And I know this is, you know, your third year of judging. I'm curious what that transition from being on the other side of the table to being a judge has been like for you. And if any part of you misses uh, competing at all. You know, luckily, I think for me, I'm dancing so hard on tour, you know, <laughs> I'm definitely getting, I'm, I'm, I'm fulfilling my, I'm fulfilling the performer in me and the dancer in me extensively, I should say, you know, uh, being on the road in front of thousands of people live and pushing my body to the limits. And so to, to, to be a judge now is, is wonderful because I get to come and after working so hard, I get to sit down and, and then see what everybody else has been working on. You know, it's the, it's a nice, you know, uh, set up, I should say, but you know, I, I feel like I feel very content with the work that I did on Dancing with the Stars. I look back mm-hmm. and they're like seventeen seasons, you know, mm-hmm. six wins, and you know, and all these different things, and you know, performances. And I still perform on the show. You know, I think I mm-hmm. still have performances, and so I, I yeah, I feel like I kind of get the best of both worlds, where I'm still able to perform. If I were to say one thing that I would miss about being a part of the show is, is just the, the relationship between the, the celebrity in the sense that there's, it's such a fulfilling aspect where you get to work with somebody and really bring out a part of them that is, um, that they've forgotten they have, or they didn't even realize they had. 
Mm-hmm. I think that, that part is uh, very special and it's, uh, it's, it's what makes the show so beautiful. Absolutely. It's always been my favorite part of the show too, um, especially the, the in the rehearsal of that aha light bulb moment of I didn't realize my body could do this or that I could still, you know, get my leg up there or something like that. So that, I definitely Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I also was curious, you know, dancing so clearly runs in your family. Were you always certain that you wanted to pursue dance or was there ever a moment that you considered something outside of entertainment or or no? You know, I I, I never really wanted to dance but I, originally. If there was something that I was, you know, my mom made me go, you know, because I had four sisters, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But of course, I fell in love with it. And, and I, lo- I fell, also fell in love with this the opportunities of being able to travel around the country and then eventually moving to England at 12 years old. And I love the, the, the training aspect, the discipline and, mm-hmm. and the, and also the, the progress, like you were able to be like, there's measurable progress for like, oh, wow, this week I could do one turn, next week I, I, I you know, I could do two or, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that progression is really what it, you get sort of attached to, you get really excited about. Um, um, but if I wasn't a dancer, um, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know because I started so young. I was like like 11 years old when I started. Mm-hmm. Um, so before that, I just, you know, I would dream about being like, you know, like a rock star or something, you know, like playing guitar or, you know, but it's kind of like cool because I, I kind of get, I'm living out my childhood dream, but just through a different, I didn't realize I'd be doing it through dance, you know, on stage and, and rock it out in a different way. Um, but uh but yeah, I think it's, um, but I do, I do love just creating, I love building things, mm. you know, I think that that's, that's kind of what choreography is and that's what it, it's all about building and, and creating something and working with people. And so, um, you know, I love renovating houses. I renovated a house, you know, during COVID essentially by myself, I just kind of, it's kind of my little project, you know, but it, I, and I just love seeing something or having an idea and, and creating it and then being like, oh, there it is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's really special. I'm also curious, as somebody else who also grew up dancing alongside a sibling, what's it been like getting to share so much of your career with your sister? I know you two have gone on tours before. You both are Dancing with the Stars. You had this lovely, delightful step into the movies with Disney. I'm just so curious, again, as somebody else who grew up dancing yeah. with a sibling, like what, what that relationship has been like for for you. Oh, it's been, it's been wonderful. It really has. It's been so, I feel so fortunate that, um, you know, to have somebody in your life, like, you know, a, a sibling and like where we, we grew up together, we grew up training, we grew up competing against each other and, and we grew up, you know, on a show together, essentially, you know, to have that parallel experience has been incredibly helpful. You know, we've been there for each other. We've helped each other through it. And it's, um, you know, especially being in sort of the public eye sometimes, you know, it, it, it's a very unique experience. And so to have somebody that understands it or is experiencing it, um, you know, we're able to sort of look out for one another, essentially, you know, and, and, um, and you know, help each other out or, or uh, support one another. So, yeah, it's really great. It's really great. I feel very, very fortunate. That's wonderful. And then just another just out of, Curiosity. I don't want to take up too much of your time because I know that you've got show tonight. Um, but Love I'm it. just curious, like, who were some of the performers who who have inspired you and are kind of like on your your dance version of 
of Mount Rushmore. I think there's definitely some obvious ones like Gene Kelly and, and Fred Astaire, who are just timeless. And when you watch their when you watch their stuff now, you're just like, oh, that stuff just absolutely holds up and just gets better and better and better with time. And then there's people who, you know, people don't really know, you know, I think the people I, I competed against growing up or, or that I looked up to in the ballroom world that were just, you know, yeah, they were just, they were fantastic. And yeah. um, so they're not really any sort of famous names, I should say, but, um, but they were the ones who were, that I thought about, that I wanted to be, that I wanted to be like, you know, and I was like, oh, and I molded myself after. What stood out about them? There's the quality of their movement and and like the way they like they move their body. There's a, a gentleman named Slavic Kriklivi, <laughs> which and this is like which is why I don't even say his name. She's like, wait, what? Um, but it, in the, in our little world, he was like, as far as the the male is concerned, like the, the male dancer, it was kind of like revolutionary, you know. In that moment, we all there was like a, a style, and then all of a sudden he kind of came on like, wait a minute, that's that's a whole different style. That's a whole different way of moving the body. That's a whole different approach. It it became kind of like the person that we all like looked up to and 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 wanted to be like, you know. So, Derek, thank you again. Um, I know that you've been up since the wee hours of the morning. I know it's all good. <laughs> My pleasure. Derek Huff's Symphony of Dance is coming to the Palace Theater in Albany, November tenth. We are going to take a short break now. When we come back, we're going to talk to two of our reporters who have done some digging into the ties that the alleged main mass shooter had to New York State. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union subscriber today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Marshall. The investigation continues after a mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine last week that claimed 18 lives. Though Lewiston is several hundred miles from New York, we have learned that the suspect, 40-year-old Robert Card, had traveled with his Army Reserve unit to Peekskill three months earlier. During a training stint, the Army says he began behaving erratically. He was taken to Keller Army Community Hospital at West Point on July 16th by members of his unit, and then he was allegedly brought to Four Winds in Katona, which is a hospital that specializes in psychiatric care, a day later. Times Union Capitol Bureau reporter Josh Solomon and Hudson Valley managing editor Philip Pantuso have been covering the story of Card's time in New York this summer, and they join me now on The Eagle to give us the latest about what they've learned. A lot of times in the Times Union newsroom here, you know, when something happens on kind of a national or global level, it's a big piece of news, we uh, always kind of look for a way to localize it in a way. Um, 
and to kind of uh, bring it home to the capital region in terms of why this is a story we should pay attention to. Obviously, a mass shooting is a story that you don't really have to explain the reasons for paying attention to it or trying to find a local angle. But we immediately kind of set to work once you know this news came across the wires um, to find a way to, is this connected to New York or our audience in any way? So, because I know there was a connection to West Point that came out when they were talking about the um, identity of the, at the time, alleged shooter. So, Philip, I want to start with you in the Hudson Valley, where West Point is very much in our coverage area. How did you get on this story? Yeah, the early reporting, once the reporters who were covering this story started digging into the background of the shooter, Robert Carr, he was an Army reservist, and pretty quickly, I think within like 12 hours or so that first day, it was revealed that over the summer he had trained at West Point. Last week, we started diving into what he did there, kind of like what the timeline of events was. Josh, how did you jump in on it? I saw that the Associated Press had reported that while he was at West Point or in the area, uh, he was transported to a hospital by state police. And that made me think of prior reporting I've done, which is... State police is very, very active in the reporting of red flags and emergency risk protection orders, especially since the Buffalo mass shooting uh, in which Governor Hochul expanded and made them really a mandatory reporter in a lot of cases. And so the question to me was if he was ever in the custody or somewhat in the care of state police, did they file a red flag? Did they? That's the question and, now. Right. And, and our reporting indicates that state police did not file a red flag. And the reason that's important is that if my understanding of the process is that if a red flag was filed and, and a judge issued the order, he would appear on a, a national database, NICS, where if he went to buy a gun, he would essentially be on a a no-fly list. He he would not be able to purchase that gun from a, a lawful dealer, theoretically. So if he had purchased, and it, it appears from uh, from other reporting that he did purchase some firearms legally in the days, weeks before the shooting, maybe this was one point in which he could have been prevented from doing that lawfully. Obviously, there's always um, we report all the time about shootings with illegal firearms, so it's not that it's necessarily the only path to get a uh, to get a gun. So that was one point that we picked up on. But as Phillips reported, some of the narrative has changed as the days have gone by and more facts have come out, and officials have kind of cleaned up their narratives. Well, you you did that segue better than I ever could. So let's let's jump from there to to what you found, Philip. So earlier this week, the U.S. Army issued a, a detailed timeline of Card's Army-related activity, beginning with his training stint supporting the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, which um, he was sent there on July fifteenth, twenty twenty-three. He was staying with his regiment at a training site just across the river. Um, from West Point, and they were they were staying there and then supporting like summer training at West Point. We'd previously reported that within a day of his arrival, he had been removed from that site because of concerns or, around erratic behavior. 
Um, and that's when he was transported to the hospital. One of the things I, I kind of discovered yesterday is that the original reporting says that he was taken to Keller Army Community Hospital, which is, a, which is an Army hospital uh, right near West Point. The Army's timeline said that by July 17th, which was two days after he would have arrived at the, in, in upstate New York, um, unit leadership understood, quote unquote, that he was at Four Winds Hospital um, in Westchester County, which is a civilian hospital, not under the auspices of the Army or the Defense Health Agency. The reason that's kind of important is that he was, we, we know how he got to Keller Army Community Hospital. Um, originally, we were told that state police transported him there. The timeline that they kind of clarified, and, and both state police and Army are saying, uh, are saying this now, is that unit members actually took him there and he was sort of escorted by a state trooper who followed close behind. So state, state police were obviously still aware that he that there were some concerns about this individual, um, but they did not physically actually take him into custody and drive him to the hospital. They just and, sort of escorted him. And just to jump in there real quickly, the, to state police at least, this matters a lot because if he was not in their custody, maybe it removes a little bit of the responsibility on their end on whether or not they were sh- supposed to file a red flag there when in the the threshold the the guidelines for filing a red flag is you know if state police has someone that or any law enforcement has someone that is likely to be a serious risk to themselves or others in creating harm typically talking about suicide or homicide expressing that explicitly they are required to file a red flag especially if they know that if they have access or could have access to firearms so this case appears from the outside fairly ripe for that. But given that the state police is trying to distance themselves from, we weren't, he was never in our custody. We were just riding along. It complicates the picture of it. This is an extremely complicated picture, not even to understate that at all. You know, we previously reported that within a day, he was taken to Keller Army Community Hospital Wednesday we kind of clarified exactly how we, how he was transported there. And, and, and Joshua was just talking about how, how that's important and, and why. Um, yeah. A day later, he was at this civilian hospital in Westchester County called Four Winds. We don't know at this point how he got there. State police say they did not take him. So it's, it's unclear if unit members drove him there as well, or if he got an Uber or somehow got there. Um, we're, we're not really sure how, but he, he, he was there. And then by August 3rd, he had returned home to Maine near Lewiston, where, you know, he eventually committed the shooting. That's according to the Army. On that day, August 3rd, they directed that while on military duty, he should not have a weapon, handle ammunition, or participate in live fire activity, which is essentially training exercises with with live weapons. So they sent out that warning. Um, I, I was trying to get some clarity about who has access to that. That directive that the Army issued on August 3rd um, went to CARD's company commander. And the way it was described to me is that it's essentially like a profile, like a temporary indicator uh, on his record. That, that's an internal document um, to the U.S. Army and not available to outside authorities. An Army spokesperson told me he was 
99% sure that other law enforcement authorities or state or federal authorities were not notified of that, but um, he was going to clarify that for me as we're, as we're speaking here on Thursday. So that, um, that flagged by the army, in essence, it prohibited him from, you know, operating firearms, you know, in the line of, of duty, so to speak, right? When he was on, you know, on duty and participating in training exercises, but because that maybe that didn't trickle down to other law enforcement organizations, he wasn't red flagged from operating guns in his in his personal time, right? Or p- purchasing guns in his personal time. Correct. And, you know, there's, there's a lot about this case that kind of reveals, you know, the sort of insufficiency of the patchwork of kind of reporting authorities, especially when you're dealing across state lines or across military and, and civilian sectors. And, you know, we're still kind of untangling how things might have been different. Oh, my goodness. The con- like even talking to you guys after having read your stories like the- it just gets even more and more and more complicated. I'm wondering, maybe Josh or Philip, have you heard any kind of initial rumblings of, you know, calls for legislation or changes? Like, is that on the table yet? Is that, you know, piqued anybody's interest yet? No, <laughs> <laughs> it it seems that from what I've heard from state officials, it- there's no, I, I haven't heard much and, and doesn't appear to be much of an appetite to address this issue, especially in the early days, relatively, of this investigation on what's going on. State police maintains that this is an open investigation, uh, so they're not really commenting on much. Governor Hochul, who's been very quick to talk about all of her her believed successes on the red flag law, Attorney General James, the same. They have not come out and said, hey, look, maybe we should review this. Maybe, maybe there's a there's a hole here. Mm-hmm. The governor is also, after the Buffalo mass shooting, was saying, look, we, uh, we're going to have a better monitoring system of social media for any extremist kind of post so we can be on top of things and make sure that there's not another mass shooting. So the governor has not come out and talked about this issue. She's been very focused on on other issues that are pressing the state right now, including anti-Semitism, which uh, I think she politically views as a big win for her. And so she's not talking about this. Granted, it's an open investigation, but that hasn't stopped her from talking about other things like the child abduction before. She talked about that while it was an open investigation. So... From what, from my end of things in, in the Capitol, there's not much um, of a response to this. A lot of the initial figure pointing was, well, Maine should have a red flag and not a yellow flag law. They should have more stringent gun laws. Well, this individual happened to be in crisis while in New York and nothing was done to apparently stop them from possessing a firearm within the range of the state's laws. Yeah, it appears the only the only kind of roadblock he hit is there was I think in August he went to pick up a uh, a sound suppressor, a silencer that he'd purchased online, and he disclosed to the shop owner there in Maine that he was having mental health issues, and that shop owner did not let him complete the purchase. But you know, Maine officials have said that the the hospitalization that he had in New York wouldn't have triggered their yellow flag in part because uh, reportedly he went voluntarily. Wow. 
I know that, you know, we don't go into main politics much and there's not much we can say about that, but it's probably definitely something that we'll watch, I think, going forward in relation to what happens here in New York, I'm sure, right? For sure. And I think one thing to to just caution is that the facts we have right now are the facts that we have right now. They've already changed over the last few days, especially as uh, public officials have taken heat for whether or not they have they did the right thing. And so as the investigation moves forward, the facts uncovered and, and what in its full collection come out could change as well. So the, the, our understanding of this very complicated event is, is likely to, to grow and to mature. But I think that one thing we've seen, and, and there's been widespread reporting from national outlets on this as well, is that there were many different touch points when this person interacted with the system, whichever system it was, and people around him said, I'm concerned about this person. For more on this and other stories that we cover, visit timesunion.com or check us out on any of our social channels. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. The Eagle is a production of The Times Union. It's produced and edited by me with help from The Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Catherine Kiesling, Josh Solomon, and Philip Pantuso for their contributions to this episode. 